to 1 Corinthians 13. First Corinthians 13. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Everything that we need for instruction, for building up our faith, for understanding who you are at this current moment in time, you have given to us in your word. We need no further revelation. We simply need what has been written down in this book, illuminated by the Spirit of God, to teach us, to mold us, to shape us for eternity with you. I am sure there is much more to be learned in the years and eons to come. But for now, we simply need your word. Teach us during this time what you want us to know about the love of your son. We ask it in his name. Amen. We've spent the last several weeks um, studying this little passage of scripture that describes Christian love. And it's possible, I think, after that much time that we begin to lose sight of the full picture of what's going on here. And so before we get into the details of the few words in today's verse, I'd like to remind you of the ground that we've covered so far to get our minds oriented in the right direction. But before I do that, I want to read the sections of Scripture that we have moved through so far, starting at verse 1 of chapter 13, and I'm going to read through verse 5. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And so I just want to remind you before we get to these few words that we're going to be dealing with today, I want to remind you of where we've been. And those first three verses set the stage for the rest of the passage, and they tell us that love is the one thing that you cannot do without as a Christian. It is indispensable. We're not talking about, when we talk about love, we're not talking about sappiness like you might see on a Hallmark card. We're not talking about sentimentalism. We're not talking about just your feelings. The love of Christ that we see in the New Testament is strong. It is able to endure. It's able to bear up under pressure, and it will seek the good of others. Now, this church that this letter was written to, the Corinthian church, they had lost sight of this thing. Worldliness had pressed its way in. Satan had begun to deceive these people, and they had begun to look at one another as competitors in the Christian arena. 
It was just one more thing to have competition about. I need to prove that I'm more godly than you are. They needed their pride puffed up. They wanted to ensure that they were in a better place than the other people in the church. They had better gifts than the other people in the church had. And so pride was winning in this church, not love. Paul sees this. He hears about this from his fellow ministers. And he wants to get these people that he loves back on track. And what they needed to know and what you and I need to know this morning is that Christ has saved us for love. Jesus came to save us for love. And the world is going to know that we are his disciples, not because we're powerful, not because you're winning at life, but by the way you love one another. That's what Jesus says will set you and I apart from the rest of the world is the way that we will love one another. The world is supposed to see there is something different about the people in his church. Man, they treat each other in a strange way, but boy, it's, there's something very attractive about that. Christ has saved us for love. And so here in these verses, Paul begins to describe what this love is like, and he describes what this love is not like. So if you look with me at verse 4, he says, love is patient. So several weeks ago when we were dealing with this passage, we saw that it means that it suffers long. It's long-suffering. It holds up under weight. It holds up under the pressures of life. And it does not simply give to people what you think that they deserve. But it bears with them in trial and in difficulty. Paul says love is kind. And so not only does love refrain, refrain from giving people what you think they deserve, love joyfully and generously gives to those people. And so patience, in a sense, means you're holding back giving them what you think they deserve. Kindness is me giving to them what they do not. At least the good that you don't think they really deserve, you pour out on them anyway. Christ came to give us love, came to give us good from God, you and me. Did not come to give us the wrath that we deserved. And so we start doing that too when we come to know him. Paul then says that love does not envy. Love isn't always comparing itself to other people. We have a tendency to do that, do we not? We look at others, we see what they have, we see the blessings that they have, we begin to envy them. We begin to hate them, get frustrated by them. But love doesn't do that. It doesn't delight in the misfortune of a rival. It doesn't simply want what others have or want to take what others have. It rejoices with them in the blessings that they have received. That's what love does. Love does not boast, he says. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. And so love does not think too highly of itself. But you know what? It also does not think too little of other people. We're prone to do that, are we not? Think too highly. Esteem ourselves too highly, but think too little of those around us. Love does not have an overinflated view of itself. 
It doesn't try to let the air out of other people either so that you'll look better. That's what a boastful, arrogant, and rude heart will do. And finally, last week we saw that love does not seek its own. It does not insist on its own way. It is not selfish. So not only does love pursue its own happiness, it naturally does that. We all do that. We pursue our own happiness. Love will also joyfully pursue the happiness of other people alongside of its own, and it will also gain happiness from the happiness of other people. So when I seek to make you happy, that makes me happy. That's what love does. It rejoices with those who rejoice. In all of these, a theme becomes clear to us that Christian love is other-focused. It focuses on other people. It pays attention. It has its eyes open wide at those who are around me and seeks to bless them. It's other-focused. I told you before that, that I am nearsighted. If my contacts were to fall out right here while I'm preaching, I mean, I seriously could not see clearly beyond the hand in front of my face. Like, I know that you're out there. I can see a little bit of movement. But, man, it's cloudy and hazy. And that is what the self-centered man is. He cannot see beyond himself. Doesn't even want to. It's almost as if he is not even aware that others are out there thinking things, feeling things, processing things. Everything is about him. He's always asking the question, how does this affect me? How is this going to make me look? But love is able to see, wants to see beyond itself. That's what it does. It's always paying attention to other people. Kind of like what Tom said up here on the stage a little while ago. Somebody thinking about him, noticing the ministry that he had, wanting to bless him. Love is outward focused. Not always wondering, what am I going to get out of this? It's what can I give to you? How can I bless you? That's what love does. Why? Because that is what Christ has done for us. It starts there. This is just gospel overflow. The love that Jesus has poured out to us on the cross, that is what we are given by him and we begin to pour out on other people. He gives us his very heart. He gives us his spirit. And now we are compelled. We want to. There's a new want to in my life. I start to notice the people around me that I didn't notice before when I come to Jesus. And I begin to serve them and take care of of their needs. That's what's being talked about here when we say Christian love. It is love that Jesus Christ himself has poured out onto us, but also in us. So Christian love is other focused. And just in case you've forgotten, if it's not clear as we read this, you know, Paul, he personifies love. So everything that he describes here, he really is describing Jesus himself, the heart of God. He's the standard. He's the model. So when we read this, we could actually see Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. And what we're supposed to be led to think, or at least ask ourselves, am I? 
Am I patient like Jesus is? I'm a Christ follower. I say I belong to him, that I have been filled with his spirit, that I am his servant. If so, this is what we are supposed to be seeing in ourselves and in Christ's church. This kind of patience, this kind of kindness. Not all of these things that he tells us that love is not. Because a Christian loves like Christ. And for a Christian to not be doing these things is what we would call an oxymoron. How many of y'all have ever heard that word? Not a moron. Oxymoron. It means a contradiction. So a Christian loves like Christ. What is a Christian who does not love like Christ? Well, I don't know. There shouldn't be such a thing. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, and we still probably know we need this correction all these centuries later. We need to be reminded and taught, have our hearts instructed what love genuinely looks like. So here we are today, last clause here in verse 5, where we are told love is not irritable or resentful. And so both of these words are telling us what love does not do when it interacts with or has relationship with other people. And both words are dealing with anger. Anger. The first word in this text deals with short-term anger, and the second word is dealing with long-term anger. It's always helpful to look at other translations, especially when so much hangs on the interpretation of a single word. And you all probably know uh, that I use the ESV. And I read just a little while ago that it says that love is not irritable. This is the first word that Paul gives us about anger. He says love is not irritable. And that's a fine translation. But what I hear when I hear the word irritable is something like crabby, you know, grouchy crusty, cranky, somebody who just lives a little bit on the grumpy side, probably complains too much. Now, it is true that love is not crabby, right? But I don't know that that is the best sense of the word that Paul chooses to use here, because the actual word that he uses gives the meaning of something being sharpened, something sharpened. And so something is happening on the inside of a person where his emotions changed. There was a moment everything was running smoothly, all was going well, something happened in his life to where now there is a sharpness that has come in. Another place where this word is used is when Paul goes to the city of Athens. And when he sees all the statues of the false gods that are there, his spirit, we are told, is sharpened. He is provoked. Something happens inside of Paul when he sees all of these false gods. That's a good kind of sharpening. That should happen inside of God's people when we see false gods being praised. But here in this text, there is a bad kind of sharpening that happens inside of a person as she interacts with another person. I'll give you an example. Ladies, while you're eating Thanksgiving dinner, 
Your husband looks over at you and he says, boy, this turkey sure is dry. I can't even hardly get it down my throat. <laughs> Pass the water. So if your husband or just somebody around the table says that to you, what might be the temptation? Well, I'm telling you that it's this word. Something inside of you gets sharpened and quickly. It happens internally and it happens externally. And I don't think the word irritable really captures what's going on there. You don't just get a little crabby, Ugh. irritated. Ugh. But being provoked to anger probably does describe what's going on inside of you. And so when he says that about your dry turkey, do you have the impulse to respond with, well, you should have cooked it then instead of sitting on your butt watching football all afternoon. <laughs> That's the impulse, right? And then you throw your fork down, storm out of the room, Thanksgiving's ruined. And so Paul is saying right here that love is not like that. I know you might feel justified. Well, he shouldn't have. Well, no, he shouldn't have. But this is dealing with you and your response to what comes into your heart and out of your mouth and the actions that you take when you are provoked. When something comes into your life that sharpens you in the moment, love does not respond like that. And so imagine that your heart has a fuse. And when other people say things like that to you, your fuse is really short. It's quick. You're somewhat explosive. Or like some fuels, they have a really high flash point. They ignite very quickly. I looked at a chart of fuels this week, and they would tell you which ones will ignite most quickly. And propane is more than twice as explosive as gasoline and almost four times more explosive than diesel. And so throwing a lit cigarette into propane is probably going to go very poorly for you. Something's going to catch fire. Something's going to pop. But if you throw a cigarette into diesel, that fuel is probably just going to put the cigarette out. And so in this analogy, love is a lot more like diesel than it is propane. Love will extinguish a flame or the impulse for a flame. It'll put it out. But this kind of person right here, this sharpened person, they are doused in propane and they are ready to explode at the shortest notice. Anything that gets said to them, they're just ready to go. Know anybody like that? Hopefully nobody would describe you like that. But that's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to consider yourself. Are you more like diesel or propane? When a flame comes near you, are you quick 
to ignite or extinguish? Are you the kind of person that other people have to walk on eggshells around because you have proven yourself to them over time that you are easily provoked or sharpened? Everybody just knows when they step into the room, maybe it's Thanksgiving again, well, watch what you say around so-and-so. They've gotten their head bit off a few times before and it's not going to deal with it again. Are you more like diesel or propane? The love of Jesus is slow to ignite, not quick. So that's the first word that has to do with short-term anger. In the moment, something happens. The second word deals with how we're tempted to hold on to long-term anger. So again here, the ESV says that love is not resentful. I think that's good. That's straight to the point. And it's true that love and resentment, they don't go hand in hand. But the way that Paul chooses to describe this particular word is really helpful for us to understand his point. And he uses a word that has a strong sense of accounting, record-keeping, listing things on a ledger sheet. In fact, the NIV actually does a really good job of explaining this. It says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Well, that I understand. Like a a first-century business manager, he would have been very familiar with this word. It would have summed up a good bit of his work, the things that he did around the office. He is a record keeper. He writes things down. He's supposed to come back and refer to these later on. He's supposed to come back probably and collect on debts that have not yet been paid. He hasn't scratched them off of his ledger sheet. They're still there. The human heart likes to keep records. Our hearts like to keep record of what has happened to it. But because sin has infected the heart, it's much more likely to keep records of wrongs and hurts than it is to keep records of blessings and encouragements. Holds on to those a whole lot longer. If you hurt me, I'm going to remember that. And so if you are not careful to oversee your heart, you will find that it is really good at keeping up with all of those hurts like debts that still need to be paid. Whenever you talk to a person who's had some negative transactions with you, anybody have anybody come to mind right now? Somebody that has negative transactions with you in the past hurts that are still there. Your heart will bring to mind what they have done and will prompt you to make them pay. You become a collection agent of sorts on behalf of your heart. You're always looking to collect on the debts you feel like you are owed. And the way that you do that is with anger of some kind, resentment, bitterness, lashing out, frustration, mistreatment, sharpness in the moment again with them, 
because they have written something down in the ledger sheet so long ago. So you probably can't remember the 15 kindnesses that she's shown you in the last year, but boy, you sure do remember that thing that she said to you in 1999 that ruffled your feathers. You have held on to that. But all this other stuff, all these blessings, good things that have been poured out on you that she has done or said, mm-mm, Hart didn't write any of that down. But that thing she did, it wrote it down and underlined it and broke the pencil lead off. And just when the two of you, you notice, are starting to get a bit too friendly, or your relationship starts to take a good turn, things are starting to go well between the two of you. Your sinful heart pulls out that ledger sheet and says, uh-uh, you remember 1999? <laughs> I don't think that she has ever paid you back for that. Make her pay. And anger rears its head again. It keeps you as a slave to sin rather than as a slave to Jesus Christ. That's how the sinful heart operates. That's what Paul is talking about here. Anybody here know of something of what I'm talking about? You've seen it in others, right? You've observed it in other people. But I hope that you're able to see your own heart. That's what the Word of God is meant to do. Expose us, expose our sin So I ask, do you have a heart that is first-rate at keeping records of wrongs? Is there somebody in your life who just never can seem to get out of the debt column? They just stay there. That debt's never going to get paid off. Your heart's just not going to let them. It's almost as if your heart enjoys being angry at them. Paul is saying right here that love is not like that. Well, what are we to do about these things? How are we supposed to deal with short-term and long-term anger? I hope this morning, because you're here and you're, you haven't walked out yet, that your heart wants to become more obedient to Christ and more like Him as you interact with the people that He's placed in your life, whoever they are, both those that you rejoice to see and those who you struggle to see. How is it that the gospel can correct these errors inside of us? We need truth, do we not, to correct the lies that we've latched onto in the past or we've led ourselves to believe started to live by those lies. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to teach us to overlook offenses in the moment. It's going to teach us to overlook those. But it's also going to teach us to forgive them. That's what the gospel does. And it does that so that there will be no record of wrongs that remains in there. There's going to be no grudges kept, no resentments clung to, and anger is going to melt 
like ice on a sunny day, just like it did out here in the parking lot this week. The sun came out, heated up that black top, that ice melted and then dried away. That's what the gospel does to our hearts. It teaches us what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that becomes the basis for what we begin to do for others. Again, he gives us a new desire. So the gospel becomes the foundation underneath the generous love that we are called to give because God has exceedingly and abundantly given that very love to people like us who did not deserve it. And all of those kindnesses that he's given toward us are often summed up in one word in the New Testament. It's the word grace. Grace. It's just a word that we kind of throw around a lot, isn't it? And probably because it's thrown around a lot in the New Testament. But there is a lot that is packed into that little word. It's used in its various forms 150 times plus in the New Testament. And inside of that word is what God has chosen to give us that we did not deserve. His heart is moved to give grace to sinners who have done so much to provoke his anger. And so often I think that when we think of God, and if I, if I were to ask you to put up your hand, I'd say a lot of you all probably would at least uh, be able to relate to this, is that you often probably think of God being angry with you. Like he just constantly is up there angry and frustrated and irritable and crabby and sharp and provoked toward you. But I think so often we think of him that way because that's the way that our hearts often are. And so we make God into our image. We start to think of him the way that we respond to other people. But God is telling us that he is not like that. In his word, he actually describes himself as being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's the opposite of what we would think of him as. He is like diesel and not like propane. He's not easily provoked. He bears with sinners. He remembers that we are but dust. And he delights to give good to us when he could have given us wrath. And he came to give us that good in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Our hearts, though, we so often forget God's kindness as we forget his grace. We become the opposite of that slow to anger God. But it should not be so. It should not be able to be said of Christians that we are swift to anger and I don't know how many times, I've said this before, I don't know how many times it's been that people have told me, you know, like, it's just my German heritage. You know, it's just my, I'm just, I'm just Irish. We're all known for being angry at one another really quick and easy, you know. But it's also the Italians, have you noticed? And probably anybody else that's from Europe that came here. Everybody likes to blame it from their forefathers rather than simply saying that I've got a sinful heart. And I am quick to anger. And I need to repent. We need to understand that as we soak ourselves in the grace that God has given to us, we will become slow to anger like he is. So if you're soaked in grace, it will extinguish your temper. It just will. 
If you become more like Jesus, that's just what's going to happen. You will become slow to anger and you will abound in his steadfast love. What about these records of wrongs that we like to keep? Anybody have a ledger sheet in your heart? Somebody, they're just on your list. What are we to do about that? If you and I will become quick to forgive as God has forgiven us, there will be no record of wrongs to look back upon. No ledger sheet filled with debts. Your heart's not going to have anybody to go and collect debt from. They will have all been paid. You will give to those people what Christ has so willingly given to you. Because you understand that your sins have been forgiven and they were of infinite quality against a holy God. A massive amount that you were not ever going to be able to pay. So you should be able to ask yourself the question, how can I hold on to and write down in my ledger such trivial amounts that other people have owed to me when God has forgiven me of so much? You can read Matthew chapter 18 and see the parable that Jesus speaks there that teaches that very truth. Our publicly declared national debt is $34 trillion and counting. That's a lot of zeros. That's what's in the ledger. Needs to be collected on to have a clean slate. And does anybody in this room actually think that that debt is ever going to get paid? Mm. Just keep on kicking the can down the road. But it would be like owing that much money to somebody and they forgive you and set you free. And then you go out and you find the guy who you lent $20 for gas money in high school and demand that he pay you. You've just been forgiven $34 trillion. You're like, where's my 20 bucks? With interest, by the way. I want that extra $2. And so when we keep a record of wrongs toward other people, it speaks or it says that our hearts do not understand how much we've been forgiven of. So if you understand the grace that's been poured out on you, you will gladly begin to give it to other people. You will not be quick to anger, and you will not hold on to a record of debts that other people must pay you back for. So I ask this morning as we close, does this text expose any sin in your heart? And if it has, if God's Word has something to say to you this morning... The call to you is to repent of your sin. Look at Jesus Christ who has paid your debt. Give thanks to God for the mercy and grace that he has given to you. And praise his name. Is there somebody in your life that you need to go to and have a conversation with and ask for their forgiveness for how you have held on to your debt for so long? Anybody have somebody like that? 
God's Word exposed that kind of relationship. Somebody that you have constantly and over time made pay again and again and again. Whenever they come into your presence, they owe you because their name and their sin has been written down in your record. Now, there are certain sins that you all will understand. There are certain sins that I'm not thinking of. I'm just talking about the stuff of life. Just the junk of life. The blood of Christ can cover all sins. But I'm talking about as you think about these particular people, these little trivial things that have come into your life that they've done that you just have held on to and held a grudge for, words spoken, frustrations, haven't acted the way that you want them to, and now they're on your list. Is there somebody that you need to go to and ask for their forgiveness for the way that you have made them pay? That would be an appropriate response to this text. Not simply stopping what you've done, but an action of repentance and making some sort of amends with them. We don't want to be a walking contradiction. This morning, the call is to repent and look at Christ who has forgiven us so much and withheld the anger of God toward us so that he could give us grace. And may we do that together as a church. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Where we see here that love is not irritable, it's not resentful. It does not lash out. It does not keep a record of wrongs. You have not done this toward us. You didn't lash out and judge us immediately when we sinned. Not one of us would be here this morning if that was the case. You were slow to anger. You are patient. And you have not kept a record of wrongs against us. You tell us that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west by the blood of Jesus Christ who has washed us clean. You have joyfully given to your people what we do not deserve. And so this morning I pray that we would be a people who are filled with that love and joyfully give it to other people. Lord, please do this work inside of us to make your church like Jesus Christ so that the world will know that we are his disciples. And we ask it in his name. Amen.